Hi, thanks for joining us again. We are taking our Bibles and going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12 in our study of the wilderness wanderings. Today we're looking at Count Their Blessings, part two. Uh, We started this uh, study in chapter 12 last week, and we uh, covered just two verses. We're going to try and finish up the chapter today, but it's it's a really potent chapter. I was really, been really challenged by this chapter, and hopefully as we work our way through, you will be as well. And uh, it'll really help you to have a, a deeper understanding of how God views sin and what we are to be doing in relationship to our, our sinfulness and our wretchedness that we face. You know, when we think about sin, if I were to ask you, what is the worst sin? What would you say? Would you be one who would look and say, well, it's, it's got to be murder, or maybe it's adultery, or maybe it's, you know, some sort of racism or social injustice, temptations of, you know, sin and lust, you know, maybe it's debt, maybe, you know, but probably most of us are not going to jump right away and say envy. Most of us are not going to look and say, you know, that's going to be, you know, one of the seven deadly sins. You know, it's, it's not. It's not one of those we look at instantly and say, wow, that one's a really bad one. Grumbling, complaining, that, those are really, you know, they're up there on the worst. And yet when God looks at sin and when we look at sin, we have to remember the, the problem with this question, it starts at a weird spot because when we look at sin, maybe you remember this from our study in the... Uh, in the book of, uh, or foundations book that we've been doing. And as we look through the discipleship, when we talked about confession of sin, we talked about how we as humans see sin and how God sees sin. And we often see from that side view, we see the, that some sins are worse than other sins. And we put these differences in, and there's truth that there are different consequences to sin. And there's even legal consequences. And even when God gives the law to the Jews in the old Testament, he does look and say, hey, there's going to be more severe punishments for certain things. But ultimately, when God views sin from the top down, he sees sin as sin. He sees adultery and envy on the same. He sees that murder and the lying on that same plane. He sees them as sin. And when we look at sin, when we look at that idea of, well, what's the worst sin? It's, it's hard for us to judge. It's hard for us to say. But we know this, sin is sin, and we struggle with sin. And in this chapter, as we look at it, we're going to see that Miriam and Aaron, they've been struggling with envy. Now, envy, really, when we battle, and we all battle with it, you know, as I said in the last, the last lesson, one of the commentators talked about that it has become sort of the, the fuel that drives our economy. It's what we want. We want everything from everybody else. But when we struggle with envy, what we're really doing is we're telling ourselves a story. A story about other people, about how good their life is, about the marriage that they must have, about the, the way that their job is so much better. And we find ourselves telling our, a story that's really just left to our imagination. We look at what others have and that's what we want. And what does that end up doing? It ends up leading us down a path of grumbling and complaining. That's where we left off last time. We were talking about, we, we had learned that when we grumble, we compare ourselves in our situations to some, someone else's situation. We grumble about people because it's easier than going to them and seeking to resolve the issue in a personal way. We will grumble when we compare and declare ourselves superior to others. Like, I could do so much better job, such a better job. I, I wish I had their position. They don't deserve to, I deserve to be. And we start grumbling and complaining because we're envious that they have the position, but we think we're better at it than they are. We grumble because our lives aren't as good as we imagine. That's where that storytelling comes in. Someone else's life to be. 
We grumble when we feel we deserve more recognition than what we're getting. And Miriam and Aaron really battled with that in this passage. They felt that they deserved more recognition. They felt that they could potentially do a better job than Moses, the one that God had put in there. And when we grumble, this is where we left off in verse number two. It says, and the Lord heard it. So God hears the grumbling. And so we see that that happens. Now, when we talk about learning from history, and this is a historical book in the Bible, we can look back and we can learn from history. But really, the only thing we've learned from history is that we learn nothing from history. And we're seeing that right now in our culture. I don't understand how in the world the, the concept of socialism is just ramping up. When you look through history and you see where socialistic, communistic ideology takes you, and yet we've not learned from it, and we're trying to go back there, and people are rallying behind it. And we can get all frustrated about that politically. But what about spiritually? I mean, really, Miriam and Aaron, they should have known that grumbling and complaining gets you nothing good. They have been on the, the, the receiving end of the complaining of the people of Israel. Aaron's heard it firsthand. He's been by Moses' side. Miriam, we assume, as well, close by, being in the family proximity and hearing these things. And yet, you would think that they would have learned from history, but we learn that we learn nothing from history. And we find Miriam and Aaron both battling with this grumbling, with the complaining. Now, when we look at the context, of verses 1 and 2 gives the context for the rest of the chapter. We hear the grumblings of Miriam and Aaron, but God sees through that smoke screen. And we talked about that last time. They are going to look and they're going to make, uh, say that Moses has made an unwise decision marrying this Ethiopian or this black woman. And they're, they're using this perspective of race, ethnicity against Moses and saying, hey, look what happened in chapter 11. The mixed multitude, those outside the camp, those who are not Jewish by blood, they caused a lot of the problems. And now, Moses, you're married to somebody who maybe is part of the mixed multitude or somebody who's definitely not a Jew by blood. She's different from us. And Moses, you've made a really unwise decision. How can you be our leader? We think we, God's spoken to us. And so they, they use that, but God sees through that smoke screen. You know, they may be looking and saying, well, God gave all the, the spirit to these 70 individuals, but we didn't receive it. Yet God has spoken to us. We still have this right. We still should be in that position. We're envious of your position, of his popularity, of his power, of his prestige. And his, his, their envy just swelled to the point that they began to grumble and complain. It didn't, we also speak with the Lord. That verse two is the, the heart. That is the driving factor in their argument. That's what they're saying. They're saying, Moses isn't the only one. We're here. God has spoken to us. We've helped you. We've given you direction. We've given you leadership. We've been there. They attacked, as we said, via race and ethnicity. Was it simply because they didn't like the fact that she looked different or that her culture was different? Possibly. They could have just been full-blown, flat-out racism. But it seems like there's a little bit more, that they were hoping to maybe gain support with the ethnically pure Jews, that she's not like us, that our leader now has taken somebody who is different from us. Are they hoping to discredit Moses' leadership with the Jews? The text does not give us the, the specifics. But we know that as God addresses and God looks at them, they are having a battle with 
who God is using to speak on his behalf. They want that position. They are envious of what Moses has and his relationship with God and what he is doing. So we know that God hears. Verse 2, it says God hears. Now, God hears it, but what about Moses? I'm assuming that Moses maybe heard. Maybe he knew nothing about this. That could be. But how's he going to respond? What's he going to do about this? Shouldn't he? I mean, it's, it's, couldn't you put up the argument? I mean, if you're going to discredit my wife because of how she looks or how she acts or her culture is different, I'm going to feel the need to defend my wife and to defend my decision to marry her. And yet we come to verse 3, which is an extremely odd verse for the context. Look at verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek upon, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And if your Bible's like basically everyone that's out there, they, it's in either italics or parentheses. What, what, what's happening there? I mean, is this Moses? Because Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. He's the author of the book of Numbers. So is this Moses' humble brag and saying, I am the most humble person to ever walk upon the face of the earth. Look at me. I am Moses. I am so humble. Is that what Moses is doing here? Is that, is that what's happening? We know that Moses, that was not his heart. That was not his character as we look through scriptures. This statement is a later insertion. Under the inspiration of God, it was placed in, many people believe that it was placed in by Joshua later on. That Joshua puts it in and says, hey, this is who Moses was. He was a humble or a meek individual because that word meek has that idea of the humble. Would Joshua have been able to see the character of Moses? Absolutely. Would he have known that he was a humble and a meek individual? Absolutely. So it fits, and it makes sense that Joshua would have possibly put that in. But we know it's inserted later on, under the inspiration of Scripture, that God says this is true. Why there? Many of the commentators, as they look and they understand, and we we look through the text, because Moses is simply going to let this issue go. He's going to let it roll like water off a duck's back. He's going to say, that's fine, Mary Mary, You don't like the fact that I married this black lady, that I married this Ethiopian woman. You don't like that. That's fine. I know it's right. I'm okay with it. And I'm going to move on in life. And he does not feel the need to have to really even defend his own opinion and defend his own perspective. Is that great against you? Do you feel like you, you need to always be right and you always have to, to the nth degree, fight till you finally prove that you're right? And yet Moses looks and, you know, he's going to say, okay. But Moses feels that way. He responds. Now, let me ask you, how would you respond? How, how do you respond when a ridiculous accusation is made against you? Or an unsubstantiated one? Or this one, I mean, it is substantiated that he did marry an Ethiopian woman. But he's looking and saying, you have no grounds to be frustrated with that. There's no, I've not broken any law. I have not broken any of the word of God. He's doing what is right. How would you respond? Is it true, the accusation? Yeah, but he saw no need to defend himself because of that differing opinion. So what continues on then? So we see the context. Now let's look at the conversation. What is the conversation that takes place? Look in verse 4. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. Now, if you were to take out that insertion of verse 3, look at what happens. The Lord hears in verse 2, and then the Lord speaks suddenly. And it's not the Lord spoke just there. 
He suddenly, with intensity, he doesn't let it go by. He's going to deal with this. He's going to nip it in the bud. It says, boom, the Lord spoke. You take that insertion that's put in later out. The Lord heard, the Lord speaks. He's like, we're going to, no, no, Miriam, no, no, Aaron, we're going to deal with this. And we're going to deal with it right now. And so he's, the Lord is going to speak and deal with it. So he calls the family conference together. The first family of Israel is brought, and they're brought to the tabernacle, the door of the tabernacle. And God is going to meet with Miriam and Aaron and Moses. Going to meet with all three of them. And, you know, I have to wonder. There's a lot of things that happen here. You look, look at the verses. Verse, verse 4. Come out the three of you among the tabernacle to, of the congregation. And the three came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud and stood in front of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Uh, nothing is said, but you've got to wonder. Do they, how do they respond when God spoke to them? See, that's what we're saying. Verse 2, God speaks to us. Look, he's, he's called us to the tabernacle. Did they, did they come with an excitement with a joy, like, yes, God is speaking to us. Yeah, he, he, talk, he talked to you 70, but you know what? Here we are. Did, did he, they come with that? Look, God is going to speak to us. This is what we wanted all along. Did they, how did they act with, with, with their walk? Did they, did they walk with this humble walk? Did they walk with this proud, yep, God's going to speak to us. He's going to use us. Just, just watch. We don't know. I wish I did, because... It would really influence a lot of what you would think about the text. But I just, I wonder about some of those things in the perspective. But we do know that when God calls them, he calls all three of them. But then he has Miriam and Aaron come forward. And he's going to talk directly to Miriam and Aaron. And, and when he speaks, when God speaks, is this, is this how we, we perceive it? Where we look and we're like, all right, God is going to speak. You know, we come to church. God is going to speak. And, and we may come with that excitement and that joy. And there are times where people come with open hands and arms raised because God is, is speaking, God is meeting, and it's going to be a joyous and a wonderful occasion. And that may be how Miriam and Aaron came. But this may be the way they leave. In fact, this is going to be the way they leave. And this is the way sometimes people come to church. They're broken. They're hurting. And God is still speaking, but they're being ripped apart. They're being convicted of sin. They're being challenged with their, their internal thoughts and their emotions and their sinful habits. And God is speaking and they're being broken. And that's the beauty of even church, just being able to come and having both of those extremes on the emotions. And yet God is able to minister and to speak to both of those hearts. So God looks and he's going to speak here. Well, what does God say? What is God going to address? Maybe we should start with what he doesn't say. Now you want to be very careful when you go to scriptures and say, okay, well, what God doesn't say, and then make some theology and go too far with it. Okay, and I, and I understand that. But in the context of what is being addressed, what does God not address in this passage? He does not even talk about whether Moses was right or Miriam was right in regard to race. Was it okay to marry the Ethiopian? Was it not? He doesn't even address that because he understands that is not the issue. That was the smokescreen. He's going to argue, and I, and I, I will argue, not he. I'm going to argue that he's going to tip his hat to Moses. I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, we'll look at that in a second. And we have to understand this because there, there are a couple commentators, not a lot. But there were one or two as I was reading through that will argue because, because he doesn't say anything, silence is affirmation. And so because God doesn't say anything, 
He's actually agreeing with Miriam, but he doesn't really, you know, that it was wrong for Moses to do this, but he doesn't want to chide Moses in front of the people, and he doesn't want to make Moses look bad, you know, so he's just going to let this one slide. I have a bigger theological issue with that. Because if it is wrong and God is going to allow it to slide, then God's holiness is demeaned. And if God's holiness is demeaned, then we are doomed. That that argument is just from a liberal perspective and it's not. So just because God does does not mean he's siding with Miriam and he really thinks Moses was wrong. God deals with, God deals with the sin as it is needed to be. There's no really, what it comes down to is God doesn't discuss this matter. He, he looks and he goes, this is really a moot point. Just like, let's leave it to the side. Let's get to the heart issue. Let's deal with it. What he does address, he addresses how he is going to interact with people. How he's going to reveal himself. How he is going to uh, share his truth. He says in verse 6, he says, Hear my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak unto him in a dream. So he says, I will. When God says, I will do something, pay attention. Check it out, because he is making a firm statement. We often see the I wills with his covenants. When he says, I will establish you in a land. I will give you a seed. I will give you an inheritance. He says, I will. The I wills, when God says, I will, listen closely. He says, this is how I'm going to speak to prophets and using the prophets through you. I'll speak to them. I'll make myself known. There, there won't be any question. I will, I will do this and I'll do it through visions and I'll do it through dreams. There will be some supernatural working from me to them and you as a people will know. And later on, Moses even highlights, how do you know that somebody is a true prophet when their prophecies are given and they come true? God, God makes it clear and God is well known. He says, I've made it known. Miriam, you know this. You're a prophetess. You have, you have spoken on my behalf before. You've given praise to God. Aaron, you've done this. And all these things are happening and you see that God is saying, I will make myself known. And Miriam, Aaron, you know this. But he says with Moses, when I talk about Moses, there's something different here. He says in verse 7, verse 8, my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all of my house. With him, I will speak mouth to mouth. He looks and he says, let me tell you about the character of Moses, verse 7. This is a man who is a servant, who has been faithful. Earlier we see that he is humble, that he is meek. And and God looks and says, my servant Moses, who is faithful in all my house. 36 times in the Old Testament, Moses is called the faithful servant of God. This is his characteristic. And God says, because of this man, because of his relationship with me, because of his dedication to me, because of his ministry of service to my people and to me, he has a unique relationship with me. And Miriam and Aaron, you know this. You've seen it. Aaron, you've been around when God is speaking to Moses. You are well aware of how this happens. He says, I will speak to him mouth to mouth or face to face. We will have a personal communication. I'm not going to do it through dark sayings or through riddles. It's not going to be a vision that he has and he's going to have to get an interpretation. And really, he's going to know directly what I expect. And Moses is going to have that relationship. In fact, at the end of the verse or in the middle of the verse, it says, in the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Not a, not a phrase we typically use, the similitude of the Lord. But what he's basically doing is poetically highlighting the fact 
that he has a personal communication between Moses and God. That God sees the likeness, or Moses sees the likeness of God. Moses is close to God. Moses has that personal relationship with God where he is communicating with him on a personal level. And Miriam and Aaron were well aware of this. That's what they coveted. That's what they wanted. They wanted to have and be that mouthpiece, to be that mediator, to be that intercessor. They wanted that relationship with him. What's interesting, I think the role of the servant in the household of God is elevated to an extremely high position. Here is the meek and the humble of all the people on the earth. And God is exalting him and saying, I have a unique and special relationship with the one who is faithfully ministering and serving with me in the house of God. And that's who God exalts. He takes the humble, he lifts them up. He, he rewards the faithful. We see it throughout the scriptures. God wants to elevate those who are humbly, sacrificially serving him for his kingdom, for his ministries. And we need to be people like that who are saying we're going to serve faithfully. Not just when it's convenient, but we are going to be faithful to the house of God and to serving the house of God. And Moses is elevated in that way. Now, Look at, look at the rest of verse 8. God looks at Miriam and Aaron and says, you know that Moses and I have this face-to-face relationship. You know that he is special in my sight, and I have chosen him as this unique individual to be the mediator, to be the one who teaches and communicates my truth to you as a people. Moses is that person. Then why? Look in verse, the end of verse 8. It says, wherefore then? God is looking and saying, Miriam, Aaron, why then? Were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Why would you overstep your bounds and issue a challenge to his leadership, to his unique status? Why would you start grumbling and complaining and putting up this challenge and saying he's unfit to do what I say he's fit for? Why would you try and usurp and undermine the leader who I have established? Mary, Mary, you're out of bounds. You are wrong. Your envy has caused you to grumble and complain and you have went too far. You are sinning before God and before his people. And God looks at them and says, you, you, you knew better. You should have known better. Why would you not be afraid to do this? And so God is going to discipline. Look at verse 9. What is the, what is the emotion that God feels? And we, we've seen this now. This phrase ought to be jumping out in your mind as you've gone through the book of Numbers so far. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. The same response that God had against the mixed multitude and against the rabble in chapter 11 who were complaining and grumbling about the quail and about all the the going back to Egypt. The same response God has with his spiritual leaders, Miriam and Aaron. He says the anger of the Lord was kindled. It was literally the the phrases in his nose. It was the, like I'm... Can't believe it. Like in your nose and you're just frustrated with him. And that's where they were at. That's where God was at with them. And so God is going to discipline their envious work of the flesh. Verse number 10 is going to have, and and envy is a work of the flesh. Galatians reminds us of that. That envy is not a fruit of the spirit, but it is a work of the flesh. The anger of the Lord is kindled against them, Miriam and Aaron, 
And he then, look what it happens, verse 10, or the end of verse 9, and he departed. Now, it's really interesting. Look at verse number 10 then. And the cloud departed from the tabernacle. Just a little note, just a re- another reminder. God is the, uh, the cloud is the visible manifestation of God. Because at the end of verse 9, God departs from them. Verse 10, the cloud departs. They're one and the same. It is the visible manifestation to God. So God is here speaking to Miriam and Aaron and saying, this was wrong. You have done wrong. And the cloud is going to depart. And it almost seems if you just end there with the cloud departing, that there's no consequences. That it's just God was really disappointed and, you know, shame on you. But it doesn't stop there. The cloud is going to depart and there are going to be consequences. The consequences that are meted out, God is going to give Miriam leprosy. And that's, that's often where we stop. But take a little bit closer look. It says in verse 10 that, Behold, when the cloud departed, Miriam became leprous. So we know that. But look at the next phrase. What happens to her skin? She becomes white as snow. Remember her argument at the beginning? This woman, she's too dark. Her blackness and her culture, it's disqualified, disqualified her. And God's going to look and say, okay, Miriam, you felt that Moses' wife's darkness or her blackness was an issue? So your punishment is going to fit your crime. Your punishment is going to mete out the exact same issue you had with Moses' wife. You're going to experience some of that as well in your punishment. And her leprosy turns her white as snow. Now we look, and that becomes obvious to all. Her skin-changing color. Her skin now, I mean, you're you're talking somebody, uh, Middle Eastern descent, out in the wilderness, in the sun, she would have been darker, and now she is going to turn not just a little bit lighter shade of olive or brown, she is going to turn white as snow. She's going to be white, white. And God's going to use that as a punishment to say, "You, you were wrong, earlier making this issue about Moses's wife, but I'm going to make sure you understand that your, your decisions, your envy, your grumbling, it was wrong. He turns her, turns her as white as snow. But what about Aaron? Does Aaron get off? Does he, is there no punishment for Aaron? Does he, does he just, you know, what is, but what is, what does the leprosy demand? Think about it in light of everything we've studied. Aaron is what? He's the high priest. He had to look. Look at the verse. It says, And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. It's not a, Oh, what? Oh, no. You've got leprosy. That, That may have been part of it, but the wording that's used here is he was responsible, as per Leviticus 13, as the priest, that he was to observe and to look upon her and determine to behold whether or not this was leprosy. So now Aaron is the one who is going to have to inspect his sister, identify that she is leprous, and then indict her and say, Miriam, you have to leave camp. You have to leave the blessings of God. That may not be a physical consequence to Aaron, but that is an emotional and a spiritual crushing 
That is the consequence that he has to do. He has to look and know for the rest of his life that he was the one who had to banish his sister when he could have just said, stop, let's stop complaining. We don't need to do this. Let's be grateful and content with what God has given to us. And yet he allowed the envy and allowed the gossip to continue. He allowed the talk to happen. And and Aaron has to look and say, "You you need to leave. And then I get to stay. And the guilt that he's going to be, why do I have to stay? Why didn't I? Why wasn't I the one? We hear it all the time. Why wasn't I the one who died? Why did she have to die? Why is she the one? And Aaron's going to be riddled with that for life. So he does face consequences. Don't look and say, as some have said, well, see, God is just, he's all for the male and not for the female. They both experience consequences. And God knew the consequences that were going to hit home hardest for each of them. So Aaron does face that. Now, what happens then? Do we just leave it and we're done? No, there is contrition that happens. There is a repentance. There is a spirit that changes. There is an understanding by them that they did wrong. Now, what we're going to have is we're going to have Aaron in verses 12, uh, verse 11 and 12, going to Moses. And he is now going to have to go to Moses, the one who he had been complaining about. The one who had the position of mediator and intercessor, that being Moses. The one that Aaron wanted that. to be The one he was envious. Now Aaron is going to have to go to his brother and he's going to have to ask his brother, the one who speaks for and to God, he's going to have to ask his brother to intercede for him. To go on behalf of Aaron and Miriam. Exactly what they wanted. Now they're going to have to eat crow in a sense repent, come back, and put things in the proper order to make things right. So now he has to go to the one he's grumbled against. And and we look at this, and what do we see? He recognized his need for a mediator to deal with sin. We don't just deal with sin on our own. We need someone to mediate our sin. We need someone who goes to God on our behalf and deals with our sin for the forgiveness of our sin. They had Moses. We're going to see, and we know we had Jesus Christ. We have that one who mediates, who goes in between for us. Now, look at what he says. Really interesting. Aaron is going to go to Moses, verse 11. He says, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. When he looks and says, Alas, my Lord, he's not talking about God. He's talking to Moses. He puts himself under Moses. He wanted this position, but he's recognizing now that I need to place myself in the order and the position that God has placed me in. He says, I beseech you, please don't hold this sin against us. He's understanding. He's confessing that they had, they, they had sinned against him. He's going to the one that he sinned against. Moses, I have done this against you. I've, I've sinned against you. I'm coming to you. He looks and, and he continues on. He recognizes the need for the mediator. He says, we've done foolishly or ignorantly. In other words, what he's, what he's initially saying is this. We didn't think our grumbling was that big of a deal. And Aaron's not the only one. We often, we feel it is our right to grumble and complain. We feel that envy is a virtue in this country rather than a vice. We could find ourselves very easily in the same situation, and many of us often do, as Miriam and Aaron. And we just think it's not that big of a deal. But what does he say? He, he takes the statement further. He says, and we have sinned. But now we realize that this sin is serious to God. 
we look at that sin from that side view, God is looking down and saying, that sin of envy, it is wrong. That attitude that you're having, that complaining, that grumbling, you need to fix it. You need to become content with the position you have, with the places you have, with the things that you have. You need to become content rather than dealing with the envy and leading down the path of grumbling and complaining. And Aaron comes with this contrite heart to Moses, recognizing that he had wronged Moses, that he needed his forgiveness, that he needed someone to mediate his sin, and that he was wrong. And so we see that, and that he had sinned against God. Now, as he goes on, he also recognized the severity of the consequences. He knew that there were consequences. He understood that. Better than anyone in this situation, he's the one who's going to have, he has to banish his sister. He recognizes that it is there. And what does he say? He says, please, please, please don't. Don't let this be a death sentence to Miriam. How does he say that? It says it in a really graphic way. And it, when you get into when you look at it, what he's saying, honestly, it's a little intense. He says, let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of the mother's womb. He's looking at Miriam and he's saying, it's like she's stillborn. She's dead. He understood this as a death sentence. He understood that, that she was going to be dead. And the, the, he uses it. He talks about like the uh, stillborn child that comes out does, sort of looks like a human, but doesn't totally always look like a human. And he says, I'm looking at Miriam and this is not her. Is she, I know it's her, but the leprosy and the, it's, it's ravaging her body. Don't allow this to be the case. Don't allow her to die. So he's begging for the mercy and the grace of God in the midst, but he's, he's, he's understanding the consequences. He knows the severity of them, and he seems to submit to them. He doesn't ask for the leprosy to be healed. He asks for her not to die because of it, that she wouldn't be as a stillborn and just have a death sentence, but to let her die of a natural cause, but it not be immediate. And so he asks for that mercy, and he begs for the stay of execution. So what would your response be? You're Moses. They've been grumbling and complaining against you. They've been throwing you under the bus. How would you respond after a family member accused you of being incompetent because of your spouse's physical features? How would you respond when your authority has been challenged? When someone wants your position? When they say harsh things about you and then they come to you and they ask for your help? It's hard. It's not easy. I remember one time it was, it was a real challenge for me. When somebody told me I was one of the most incompetent youth pastors they've ever met, and then weeks later they're coming and begging me to come and to help minister to their team because they don't know what else to do and they want my help because I can really help them. This is, a, this is an attitude response I had to deal with. How do we respond in those situations? When somebody who's wronged us, somebody who's hurt us, ask for our help. What's Moses going to do here? Look, look at the next verse. And Moses cried unto the Lord. He's going to be the conciliator. The one, what's a conciliator? He's the go-between, the intermediator, the intermediary. He's the mediator. He's the one. He's going to do what Aaron asked him to do. He's going to go to God in verse 13. And he goes and cries unto the Lord saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. The humble, meek servant of God intercedes on behalf of his siblings, even though his siblings had just wronged him, hurt him, said things about him that 
were unkind. Now remember, just remember, just a side note where it says, heal her now. It seems like he's demanding to God heal her, but it is when it is from a subordinate to a superior in the text, it is a request. And we see that even at the end where he says, I beseech thee, I am begging you, help her, heal her, God. Only you can do this. Heal Miriam. I know she talked bad against me. He doesn't even get into that. That's what I would be saying. I'd be like, yeah, I know she talked bad against me. I know she was grumbling and complaining. I know she was trying to, he doesn't even say, he's like, Lord, just, just heal her. Please, I beg you, heal her now. So what does God do? How does God respond? Does he heal her? Does he not? Does he say, deal with it? Nope, I've made my justice and judgment and it is done and it is just and it is right. And if he had done that, guess what? It would have been exactly just. It would have been holy. It would have been righteous and it would have been completely proper. And yet we see that God's grace and his mercy is evidenced with a stay of execution. Verse 14, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? So let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received again. What is, what is God saying in that verse? She's not going to die from this. She's not going to die. She's going to return again. However, we are reminded that there's still shame and there are still some consequences of sin. Even when sin is repented of, even when sin is forgiven, there's still a shame that is often carried by others, by individuals. Yes, it has been forgiven. Yes, it is under the blood. And yet there is still a time period where there may be some shame and there may be some consequences that carry over and that linger on. We see that. There would have been shame if the father spit in the daughter's face. There's, no, there's, there's issues of spit being on a person, making them unclean, but there's no Levitical law or Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic law that specifically deals with this. He's just giving a, a perspective, a, a case law, an, an idea of saying, if this had happened, God's saying, if this had happened, wouldn't there be shame upon the individual? If I just wipe away all of any consequences away from Miriam, She's not going to learn from this lesson. So she needs to experience some of the shame. She needs to experience that so that she can learn from the lesson. So God balances his justice with his mercy and his grace. He still is punishing, but he doesn't do it all. And so we see that. And there is a, there is a minimum for someone who was leprous. Even though it seems like he takes the leprosy away at this point, because they have to be without leprosy for seven days before they can come back into camp as per Leviticus 13 through 15. So it, it stands to reason that God does immediately take away her leprosy at that moment. But she still has to be outside of camp for seven days because that's Levitical law. She needs to go outside. She needs to be clean for seven days so she can come in and show herself back to the priest and be declared uh, to be declared clean again. And so we see that happening, and God's, God does. God answers that prayer, but she still experiences some of the, the consequences of the, the shame. So the Lord re- chooses to reduce, but not to remove her sentence completely. She's going to be shut out from camp, as we just talked about, but she will be received again. And I think that is such a great verse for people to underline at the end. Let her be received again. Because we often have this perspective that God is just this vindictive God in the Old Testament. Man, he's just zapping everybody. He's killing everybody. And he just really doesn't care as long as he just deals with the sin. And he does deal with sin. And he does justly deal with it. But he ends up looking and saying, when sin is dealt with, 
when it is repented of, when it has been dealt with correctly, we are to receive her again. She will come back and she's to be part of the community again. And we see that the community waits for her. We see that they're, they're, they're going to wait in the next verse because their consequences, it does impact others. Our sin impacts other people. We are not an island unto herself. Verse 15 says that Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. So for, they're going to wait a week to get to the promised land longer because they have to wait for Miriam. Now, was that out of respect? We don't know. We, we know it comes to a screeching halt. Was it out of respect? Possibly. Is it more because the Lord didn't move them? Probably. But we know this, her choices impacted the other people. And it had impact on them. And our sin does. Our sin impacts. And so God graciously intervenes, allows her to come back, allows Aaron to not have to carry the weight of that guilt of banishing his sister forever and knowing that she's going to die outside of the blessing of God, outside the camp. But God intervenes. So what do we learn from this leper? What lessons do we take from chapter 12? And we learn. And I believe as we look at this, this leper, the situation with Miriam and Aaron, we learn that God's people have different responsibilities in God's plan. And we need to be okay with it. That's what drove the initial problem. They were not okay with the fact that God had chosen Moses to be the mediator, to be the intercessor, to be the mouthpiece of God, to be the one who had this face-to-face relationship. We have to, even in church, we have to be okay with the fact that different people have different responsibilities and we should not allow envy to creep up into us and say, well, I want that and I want, God is allowed. You know, if we, you know, even, even we see it with like special music. Why did they get put on? Well, I, I think I should get put on more, you know, or I should get the opportunity to teach more than that person got to teach. And I should, I'm a better teacher than they are. I don't know why Pastor Tony doesn't ask me as much. We can, we can see it creeping in and so many. Why did they let him be the head usher? I could be the head usher. We, we could, we could battle with envy in so many different ways in our midst. Let's not do that. We have to be okay that God puts unique people and puts different people in different positions and responsibilities. And let's be okay with that. Let's rejoice with them. Let's be excited about it. God's people need to, because of that, guard themselves against envy. Whether it be in church or outside of the church. To love not the things of the world. To not be looking at all the things that our neighbors have. To not be looking at all the different things and looking and saying, wait, God told us to not covet. God told us that we should not be envying our neighbor's stuff. Whether it be their donkeys, which most of us probably don't envy our neighbor's donkey, but their material possessions we may. To not envy our neighbor's wife or husband. To not be envying our neighbor's car. And to be caught up with so many of those things that it changes our pursuits It changes our passions and we start losing affinities for the things of God and we start going after all these other things. We must guard ourselves against envy because God sees envy as dangerous. He sees it as a work of the flesh. And when we continue to be envious, we will find ourselves going down a hole that is really hard to deal with and get out of. It consumes. Let's not be envious. God's people need to learn to deal with sin. Aaron gives us this beautiful picture of how to deal with sin. Miriam deals with sin and didn't deal with it. 
How do, what do we learn? Let's take a moment, just real quick, and look at that, that concept of God's people need to learn to deal with sin. How do, we, how do we deal with it? What do we learn? Sin, from this passage, we can clearly see that sin is seen and known by God, no matter how insignificant we may think it is. Aaron said, well, we did foolishly. We didn't think it was a big deal. It's just envy. We were just grumbling. We were just complaining. It's sort of what we do. We're Americans. We sort of roll that way. We may see it as insignificant, but God does not see our lying, our cheating, our peeking over on someone else's test, our asking someone else to do our homework for us, and then turning it in as our own. He doesn't look at any of that and say that's insignificant. God sees and God knows. We must understand that about sin. So sin of any magnitude, it bears consequences. We don't know always what they will be. But unconfessed sin is going to face consequences. Even sometimes after confession takes place, there are still consequences and shame that goes along with the, with the sin. But sin of any magnitude bears consequences. Sin's punishment should fit the crime. I think this is a really good, important aspect. When, we know when God punishes, it will. But I think as humans, we need to remember that it should for us as well. So if my son doesn't take out the garbage, you know, and I told him to do it, do I ground him for three weeks because he disobeyed me? Does it really fit the crime, the magnitude? We need to be thinking about the harshness sometimes of our punishment in relationship to what the sin has been done. And sometimes it does mean that we need to levy a pretty big punishment Maybe the taking away of a phone because, you know, they won't listen and they won't obey the rules. And that's, that's huge. And it might be for a number of weeks that that happens. And that's hard. But we, especially as parents, we need to make sure that our punishment fits the crime. Just like God did with Miriam. God made sure that the punishment fit the crime. Sin may give us the opportunity to act graciously and mercifully. Let's say we enact a crime, we, we, we give a punishment. One, I think this gives us the opportunity to beg for grace and to beg for mercy when we repent. But even as a parent, there have been times already where I'll, I'll levy a pretty harsh punishment and then Sharon will be like, do you think that's the best? And we'll talk about it. And we'll be able to maybe reduce it, not, not get rid of it. Some of you have been in situations where you did take the, the electronic device or you did, you know, ground from being able to use the car. Maybe it was for a long time, but after you've seen the genuine repentance and the heart change start to happen, you reduce it and you show some mercy. Why would we do that? Because that demonstrates the heart of God to our kids. Because that's what God did to Miriam that there are times that it's okay. It doesn't mean I'm not sticking by my word. It doesn't mean that I'm not a man of honor and, and keeping my word because I said it was going to be four weeks and when it's going to be four weeks because I said it. If I notice a genuine heart change, doesn't God act mercifully and graceful, graciously to us? Could I not do? There are times, there, there have been a few times where 
I've been able to have the opportunity with one of my children and just talk with them and say, what punishment do you deserve? And they will give this huge punishment. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. You do deserve that. And they know it's coming. And you can see the quiver in the lips, the tear in the eye, and knowing that it's about to happen. The, the punishment is going to be exacted. And I'll look at them, and I've done it a few times, where I'll say, you know what? Today we're going to talk about God's mercy. And how there are times that he withholds punishment that we desperately deserve. And today I'm going to show you God's mercy. And I'm not going to punish you. And those have been some really good teaching times to help them understand who God is and the mercy that God displays. I'm so thankful that God makes his mercies new each day that I am not consumed because I ought to be consumed. I ought to have been consumed multiple times this week by God's wrath. And yet God's mercy has been demonstrated greatly. Sin's forgiveness needs a mediator. Aaron recognized that. I've got to go to Moses. I need the mediator. We know that Jesus Christ is the excellent, the perfect mediator. He's the better than Moses, as Hebrews talked about and as we've talked about. He is the perfect mediator, the one mediator between God and man. He provides us with the as the one he, Christ's death on the cross provides us with the one who has the right to grant us forgiveness and reconcile us to God. It is because of Christ's death that the blood is shed. And because of that, I have that applied to my sins. We know that he says, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. As Paul writes to Timothy, he is reminding them that Jesus Christ is our conciliator. He is our mediator. And I need to go to him for my forgiveness. Whether it's the initial forgiveness of sins for salvation, which some of you may need to do. You may need to repent and ask God to forgive you of your sins and accept his free gift of salvation. If you're not sure about that and what you need to do, give us a call. Send us a message on Facebook or on on, uh, YouTube here. Let us know. We would gladly show you and help you understand this mediator, Jesus Christ. And how he helps you reconcile your enmity or your eneminess against God. But for many of us who may be believers and are saved, Christ is still that go-between. He intercedes for us when we sin. We need a mediator. Sin's consequences must be respectfully accepted and acknowledged. Maybe you're a teen listening or a child listening. Even adults when we are handed down a disciplinary issue, when we are facing a discipline, you can, you can accept it. But we need to accept it and acknowledge it with respect. To understand that I was wrong. And because I am wrong, I am facing this consequence. We don't like consequences, but we can accept the consequences with a respectful heart of contrition. Submitting ourselves under the authority who gives us that uh, judgment. So we need to learn about sin and how to deal with sin and how to deal out consequences and all those dynamics about sin. Then the lastly, lesson for the leper, God's people are stalled until sin is dealt with appropriately. The nation doesn't move because of Miriam's and Aaron's sin. 
they are stalled. Until it is dealt with and until the consequences have been met and until the repentance has been made, they are stalled. So what are we to do? When you sin, when I sin this week, when you fail and you break God's laws and you don't make God's mark and you find yourself violating what God has said to do, what are we to do? If we confess our sins, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, keep short accounts of your sin. Confess your sin. Confess it specifically. Lord, please forgive me for my sin of envy, for my sin of lying, for the attitude I just displayed toward my parents, for the attitude I just displayed toward my children, for the anger that I just demonstrated to my wife. For the bitterness and envy I have shown because I don't have a wife or I don't have a husband and I want one. Lord, forgive me. Be specific about the battles and the sins that you're facing. Do it quickly. Don't let it fester. Unconfessed sin is going to bring about greater judgment. Just deal with the sin. Confess it. Confess it quickly. Confessing sinners, what do they get to do? They experience God's grace in God's mercy. doesn't mean that they don't experience God's consequences. But they do get to experience God's grace, his justice, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy toward us. Let's deal with sin. Especially in this passage, the sin of envy. What do we learn? Do we learn anything from history? Let's learn from the leper. Let's not get ourselves and say we've learned nothing. All of these accounts in the wilderness wanderings, Paul reminds us, are for our example, for us to learn. So let's learn this week from this leper. Only a leper for a short time, but man, that story has long-term lasting impact. Lord, help us to deal with our sin, with our hard attitudes, and with even the grumbling that comes out of our mouths. So Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us not to be stalled because of our sin. Lord, help us to take short accounts and deal with our sin. Lord, forgive me for the sins that I've committed against you this week. Lord, forgive me for not being the person you've always wanted me to be and for rebelling against you. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here even listening right now that just need to confess and get right with you. I pray that they would do the same. Lord, that we would be a church and a congregation of people who are striving to be holy and understanding that when we fail, we have a God who is gracious and merciful. Help us to rely upon you and your grace and your mercy today. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.